0: Good evening. Wisdom Eccentrics by Nakchan Rinpoche, chapter three, part three. We chatted as we walked down the track and eventually rolled into Macleod Gunge village where she offered to buy me a meal. I accepted. I was hungry. Money was extremely short. Over dinner, she asked me, tell me. How do you square being a materialist with being a Buddhist? This almost made me choke on my food. Well, maybe I'm not a conventional materialist. I suppose I can say I'm a Buddhist because I don't believe that the acquisition of material things will make me happy or that the lack of them make me sad i'm happy simply because i appreciate so you don't have to have things no i like to have things but i don't have to have them well not too much i enjoy what i have and constantly see things i enjoy But I can enjoy whatever I see, whether I own it or not, and I never get tired of what I have. If I like something, I invariably like it in perpetuity. So you don't try to be a renunciate. No, not in the normal sense of the word. But then I'm not a monk, I'm a nakpa. Then, of course, I had to explain the meaning of nakpa. That took a while. So, I guess, what I try to renounce is having things mean more than they are. I orient myself to seeing things as innately valuable, whether I own them or not. I see the greatest wealth as being the extent to which I can appreciate everything within the sense fields. So my wealth is dependent on how much I can enjoy what I see, hear, smell, taste, and touch, but without any need to own whatever it might be. If I can own whatever it is, then of course I'm happy to own whatever it happens to be, but if I can't, it shouldn't be a problem. And if it is a problem, she asked, Yes I can't say it's never a problem. I won't say that doesn't happen but it doesn't happen that often. When it does I remind myself that it should not be a problem and then I sit with the sensation of however that may happen to feel. That's quite an unusual way to look at things. How did you come to develop that idea? It's not My idea, I smiled, it's Vajrayana, and all I try to do is live it. I never saw her again, but I hope she remembers me as someone who was friendly and who had no interest in using Vajrayana as a means of social climbing. Not that I'm Mr Humble or anything of that nature. I'm somewhat revolted by the Humile number, it's too complex. I like people and I like to be friendly with all, as far as possible. Anyhow, be that as it may, back in 1971, when I wasn't studying Madhyamika, I visited with Yeshe Dorje Rinpoche and his Sangyum, Kandro Tenzin Drolka. What a wonderful woman. Andro Tenzin was born in and grew up in Longsha, Rangsho, Tibet. Rangshal is close to Lipshi, the area where Milarepa often stayed. At 16 years old, when her mother died, she walked to Trulshe Grimpshe's gompa in Zahumbu. She received teachings and transmissions from him and practiced them till she was twenty-four. She then married Nakpatsering Tundrup, the eldest son of Pasangrimshe. Sadly they were separated by the Chinese invasion, Nakpatsering was killed and she fled to Nepal. Early in 71 she left Nepal and went to MacLeod Ganj in India. That's where she met and married Yeshe Dorje Rinpoche and where she first met an odd Inji. We are still friends to this day and Khandra and I support her in her practice vis-à-vis accommodation and living exigencies. Yeshe Dorje Rinpoche taught me how to make Torumas and all manner of ritual artefacts. These instructions could be given Son's language as I simply copied what he made and wrote down the Tibetan words that related to them. Often Sonam would accompany me to translate and then I learnt a great deal about the Dujum practice of Trumanakma. It had been imparted to me that I'd be well-served by going to Boda in Nepal to meet Kyabje Dujum Rinpoche, as it was from him that I should receive the transmission for the practice. It was thus that I made the decision to accompany Yeshe Khandro to Nepal a month after I arrived in McLeod Ganj. The journey to Nepal was arduous and got complicated when we reached the Nepalese border. Yeshe told me that her papers were unacceptable. She'd only just realized that they were out of date and they'd not let her through. After some thought, I decided the best idea would be to bribe the driver of a vegetable truck to take us on board and tell the passport control that I was on my own. It actually sounded quite plausible. I'd cover Yeshe with Brussels sprouts whilst we passed through the border and uncover her when we were safe. The ruse worked. Yeshe and I were suddenly in Nepal. After what was probably a little too long, I let her know it was safe to emerge from her vegetable hideout and we had a relatively pleasant journey to Kathmandu. We arrived in Boda having spent a grimy night in an insanitary guesthouse on Freak Street in Kathmandu. We were met by Pemadorje, Dorje, Yeshe's fiance on our arrival in Boda. Like Yeshe, he'd come to meet each bus that pulled in. Suddenly there he was, a very fine young gentleman who spoke extremely good English. He helped me gain an interview with Kyabje Dujam Rinpoche. I found a good translator in Karma Lama, a splendid fellow who ran a Tibetan antiques emporium in Kathmandu. Karma Lama had a great interest in rhythm and blues and we therefore traded skills. He was fascinated by my previous life as a bluesman, and I told him just about everything I knew. I knew quite a lot, and he never tired of plying me with questions about Robert Johnson, Sunhouse, Muddy Waters et al. He asked me if I would sing something for him, and I did. I sang Born Under a Bad Sign, and his eyes lit up. At that point, I think he finally believed that I'd not strung him a line. If you have a guitar, I'll play. He saw to it, even though a twelve-string was unobtainable, and we had some rare evenings. This worked out well, as I didn't want to intrude too much on the newlywed Yashay Khandro and Pemadorje. I wrote down lyrics for him and he eventually joined in with surprising gusto. How strange that I could spend evenings talking with Kamalama about blues and yet had no way of conversing with most Western people I met. I visited with Dujan Rinpoche often and asked many questions. I realized now that I had no idea how unusual my situation was. Being able to spend so much time with Dogen Rinzai was a rare privilege. He was immensely kind and dealt with my experience of silent sitting directly, asking every question, answering every question I had, and I had plenty. He was intrigued by my autodidact training in Zen and Theravada and opined that this system was somewhat like Zogchen Semde. He encouraged me to continue and persevere till I gained experience of the non-dual state. I was able to receive transmission for the Dujjum Trauma Nakma practice as well as to acquire a text which I was able to take back to MacLeod Ganj. It's not appropriate here to give a detailed account of the time I spent with Dujan Rinpoche or with Dilgo Kiense Rinpoche. I studied with both Lamas whenever I could and what they taught me was of, of immense value. Dilgo Kiense Rinpoche was also immensely kind and understood the nature of my experience with silent sitting, giving me wonderfully pertinent advice. I put the advice of both Lamas into practice immediately, and it changed the course of my life utterly. While staying in the house where Pema Dorje and Yeshe Kandro held their clinic, Pema Dorje happened to comment on my stammer. It was not as bad as it had been when I was a child, but it was still noticeable. He therefore wrote a letter which I was to, li- to deliver to the famous Tibetan lady doctor Amji Lobsang, who lived in MacLeod Ganj. When eventually my Nepalese visa ran out, I returned to MacLeod Ganj. It was sad to take my leave of Dujum Rinpoche and Dilgo Kiense Rinpoche, but I realised that I was enormously fortunate to have been able to spend the time that I did. Back in MacLeodganj, I returned to my lodgings with Amanorga. She was not surprised to see me wearing Nakpa robes and smiled broadly at me. Ah, Nakpa, yapo Dujim Rinpoche had instructed me to get some robes sewn up in boda as there was an excellent tailor there. Kjadje Dujim Rinpoche had given me the Gurkha Changlo vows whilst I was with him. Jigme Dorje, one of his monks, showed me how to wear the robes and I gave my western clothes to the beggars. I spent a delightful evening with Amma together with Puntzog, her son, and Sonam, my translator, with Yeshe Dorje Rinpoche. They were overjoyed to hear that I had spent time studying with Dojum Rinpoche and Dilgo Kientze Rinpoche, and informed me many times that I was too lucky. The next day, I went directly to see Amji Lobzang. I sat with a charming group of Tibetans waiting on the doctor. They all smiled at me and I felt strangely cheerful about what might be to follow. To get rid of my stammer, for good and all, would be little short of miraculous. When it came to my turn to see the doctor, I handed her the letter and she asked me to show her my tongue. Out it came on request and she looked at it. Her expression was not encouraging. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Much too fat, much too fat. She looked under it and over it and to each side. You must at same time tomorrow coming back. But nothing eating, only hot water drinking. As good as my word I was back the next day and she sat me down in a chair. It all happened quite quickly after that and I still can't quite understand how I found myself going through such an outlandish experience. A clamp was applied to my tongue, two steel bars tightened with wing nuts. It hurt more than I would have imagined But hey, I was here in the East for the experience, and this was it. I was incapable of communication once the clamp was applied, so asking, is this as bad as it's going to get, was no longer an option. As soon as I'd got used to the pain of the clamp, she started to wind the clamp backward, till my tongue was coiled into a scroll. Tears streamed. My eyes felt as if they were about to bulge out of their sockets. My whole mouth hurt like the very devil and I wondered how long I'd have to endure this level of pain. Just as long as it doesn't get worse, I hoped, but I hoped in vain. She then inserted a knife into the root of my tongue on either side and scrows out half a cup of blood. Then, just before I blacked out, she released the clamp and I lay back panting, as if I'd run up the hill from Ganchen Kishong. I'd gripped two holes in my tub with my fingers and had to have it patched. Whenever I saw those two patches, I stared at them in mixed disbelief. And enthusiasm. If I could go through something like that almost anything was possible. Now I could have complained that she'd not explained the procedure to me in advance but then I was grateful not to have known. I think I might have backed out. Of course Amji Lobsang didn't regard it as a big deal at all but the most pain a person's ever had is just that. It's purposeless in some ways to make comparisons. What was extreme for me might have been merely uncomfortable for a Tibetan and unendurable for someone used to more comfort than I needed. She smiled at me, now over, all good now and tongue normal becoming, just hot water today drinking, no food, then tomorrow again eating. I thanked her and listened while she gave me detailed instructions. I was to take certain pills every day and to recite the mantra of Jampalyang. Om A Ra Na Di 108 times a day. After each recitation of the mantra, I had to recite the syllable Di as rapidly as I could 108 times. I was to follow this regime for a month. The month went by quickly because I went into retreat fairly soon after I went to see Yeshe Dorje Rinpoche again. He deemed it best that I took what I had been given by Dudjom Rinpoche into solitude and that's just what I did. My first retreat is described elsewhere so there's no need to speak of it here. Suffice it to say that my stammer was gone when I re-emerged and So was I, to some degree. I was helped in my retreat by Jamyang Dawa, a Nyingma monk of my acquaintance, and I treated him to dinner at the Kunga restaurant as a token of thanks for his kindness. I also gave him my mountaineering boots, as he'd taken a great fancy to them. The Kunga is about as large as the average bus shelter and had a television perched on metal brackets near the ceiling. As we ate our dinner of Swiss rosti with cauliflower and onions, we were treated to a documentary on Indian open heart surgery. Now, I'm not squeamish, so this posed no problem, but it was a surreal experience nonetheless. The documentary had background music, fairground themes on the mighty Verlitzer which accompanied statements such as, now we are exposing the left ventricle, only in India.